Really True Fiction is a podcast exploring famous stories to discover the wisdoms, lessons, insights, and ideas therein. Be advised that there will be heavy spoilers for whatever story we are discussing in this episode, as well as potential spoilers for other stories. Check episode notes or social media posts for additional spoilers. Please note that this podcast contains so many bad words and so many crude observations. If this is not your jam, please don't bring the toast. Welcome. You find yourself in another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And mine's David Parker. David, I have a question for you. Yes. Would you say you're hard on firmness or soft on firmness? Firmness of, of what particularly? I just want to know Do your you mean general... Like firmness in the raising of children, perhaps? I just want to know your general <laughs> stance on firmness. I mean, generally, I think the firmer something is, the better it is, at least in the sexual sense. So you would say... <laughs> okay, well, you've made me lose all... Subtlety there. So you're hard on firmness. I'm, I'm hard, hard on firmness. I'm yeah. glad we got that. <laughs> I'm going to put that on your hard tombstone for firmness. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes. Today we are doing the Charles Dickens novel, David Copperfield. It was serialized in newspapers, I believe, but I think at least the note I looked up says it was published as a total compilation in 1850. So what is that? That's... 179 years ago. Wouldn't it be 169 years ago? Is it 169? Yes, Yes. 169 years (laughs) ago. And so, is this the oldest story we've done? I guess Robin Hood. I mean, Robin Hood's probably technically older. So uh, why don't we go through a quick plot summary, Luke? So this is a book that is allegedly a pseudo-book autobiography by Dickens. So apparently this story, David Copperfield, is the most of what Dickens' life was actually like. Or at least what Dickens thought Dickens' life was like. Of course. And it's not. It's definitely not a plot-driven book. It's a character study more than anything. So you get kind of, when you understand that it is originally written to be serialized in a newspaper, it's kind of like reading the episodes of a, or reading the, the scripts for a TV episode or like a TV series that you really like. I know. And I would say like this is almost like the earliest versions of TV shows. Yeah. Like you're getting yeah. these episodic look-ins on these characters that we learned about. I bet that's that how people about. reading these things felt because they didn't even have radio at this point. Right? Yeah, no, so. of course. Yeah. And so they, and, and so entertaining. And so we have David Copperfield, our protagonist. And the beginning of the book is his early life. His dad uh, perishes before he is born. So he's raised by his mom and his nurse, Peggotty. And as he's a little bit older, I get, but not that old. Like, it's like six or seven. Also, an interesting thing about this book is that he has reflections from age six or seven as if he was, like, already a 30. Like, it's a <laughs> kind of funny. They're very deep reflections <laughs> yeah. for a six-year-old. <laughs> I definitely was not capable of such thought when I was six. <laughs> I, I'm not even capable of such thought now, I would say. <laughs> and so his mom remarries a guy named Mr. Murdstone, who's a bit of an asshole. And, and his... somehow Mr. Murdstone's like, let's have my sister come live with us permanently. Yeah, yeah to, to double down on the firmness, yeah. <laughs> if you will. Yes, yes. Because they are the ones who bring all the firmity. <laughs> to... And infirmity. Yes. 
and then he grow uh, as he gets older he goes to a school then he has to go work in a factory that mr murdstone owns and then he goes to the live by the sea for a little while yeah and he he kind of and then once he's supposed he goes to, to canterbury lives with his yeah. aunt for a and then, and then, because his aunt basically saves him from the Murdstones at some point. He's got a long lost aunt who lets him live with her. He was there at, at when he, at his birth? And yeah, was actually really, really seemed really ornery and not interested in him. Well, she he was, was a boy. Yeah, she was really hoping for a grand niece, not a grand nephew. Yeah. and in fact, she doesn't call him David. <laughs> she no. calls him Trotwood. Yeah, or Trot, <laughs> which is her, her name. Yes, her last name, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. So, and then. Well, so he's not living with his aunt anymore. He lives with um, the older fellow who's the father to Agnet. So basically, he lives with them for his entire schooling. But it seems to be like he's 10 years old, and he kind of graduates seven years later. <laughs> and he's living with Agnes, and she's kind of like a sister to him. And then there's Uriah, and he's there working. Yeah. And basically, he, he grows up in that environment until he be, reaches uh, of age and then moves into the city. Mm-hmm. And so there's about four three or four different kind of locations and in dr the book. strong is kind of the the headmaster of this of the it seems like it would be a boarding school but he doesn't board at the boarding school right and so there's like these four or five different locales that are kind of the general place or setting of the book and david kind of travels between them all and by far the most important aspect of this is his relationship with all the other characters in it so his aunt the Murdstones, uh traddles uriah heap steerforth his friend steerforth what's his butler's name that he's mir litimir yeah 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 and then the mckybers who are Ah. the most flavorful (laughs) characters i think they're the the most honestly they're more memorable than david copperfield yes of all of the great memorable characters that dickens has given us mckybers are top five they gotta be i think in terms of i agree even their impact on the reader have you seen the the uh the i don't know if it's a disney film but the the david copperfield film yeah the animated one yeah the animated one and we had like a half recording of it (laughs) when we were kids and it was like the story just kind of stayed at the factory. Yeah, and like free, he was freed from the factory by his aunt, who kind of showed up. But and there yeah. was Agnes again. It is, and- it is a, it is a deep, the deep recesses of my mind, a childhood memory, because I always wanted to see the entirety of that. I, we also had a half. We must have had the same one, but we had a, <laughs> we had a half recorded one as yeah, well. Like from recorded some from TV. Video. Yeah, that exactly. Starts with tracking lines, <laughs> so that you're like already in the middle of the story. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, that, I remember that. So yeah, basically the story is all of the lessons and things that David learns as he grows. And also there's like the kind of I mean, theme of the book is his love life and his relationship to all of the women or girls he comes across that he wants to be with, whether it be Emily or for a moment Rosa, but not for long. And then when he marries Dora and finally finds his true love with Agnes, like all of that Which, I mean, is in there. Let's be honest, could not be more obvious. It's almost like a Pam and Jim. Like, no, I know. From yes. the very yeah. moment he meets yeah, her. Yeah, it's, it's, like, it's not particularly hidden. But I think that that's but like, what makes but again, the learning the, about it. The serialized version of mm-hmm. it, I think it is like that. I'm sure the people reading it in the 1850s were like, when are they finally going to get together? Yeah. Like, come on, Dickens. Yeah, and, and the thing that's so... A funny thing for this particular podcast is that we both knew that we wanted to do a Dickens. Like we couldn't, it's, it blow, it, it, I am flabbergasted that it's taken to 
this long in our podcast round to get to a Dickens novel. And the funny part is we couldn't agree on which one to do. Yeah, I um, wanted to do Great Expectation and yeah. Luke wanted to do Oliver Twist. So we, no. sorry, Tale of Two Cities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Great Expectations were Tale of Two Cities and we couldn't agree. Like we were both basically stuck our feet in and were intractable. And so we decided to, um, what is it? What do they say in Stranger Things? Become halfway happy. <laughs> so we decided to do a, a Dickens novel that neither of us wanted to do. <laughs> Which still awesome Dickens is always an enjoyable read. But I will say that this book is a slog. Yeah, it's not. It's a long book. It is not fast paced. No. I, here's what I'll say. It's not a page turner. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's an ingesting yes. book. You do need to really kind of take in all of the sentences that Dickens is writing about in this story. And that's not always easy, granted, but I think it's a it pays off big time. Uh cuz this because the book is wonderful. Like it is an incredibly good book and I think it David Copperfield is a Dickens novel that I think flies under the radar a little bit because of all of obviously like Dickens. I mean, once you say Great Expectations, Tale of Two Cities, Christmas Carol, Oliver Twist, but then you've still got Bleak House, Nicholas Nickleby, Pickwick Papers like he's just got all of these books that have saturated culture that I think this one kind of slides under and yet I didn't want to tell you this before we're recording but David Copperfield is actually my favorite oh, <laughs> Dickens novel. So really you're not halfway happy at all. <laughs> no I'm always full way happy <laughs> but I I mean I thought Tale of Two Cities might be a more interesting first Dickens novel to do just because of the whole French Revolution aspect to it which is yeah. obviously so interesting but this one I think is his most human book. And I think that that's so, uh, that makes sense given it's a pseudo autobiography, but also on top of that, even how to me, Dickens is one of the greatest human writers. Like his insights into the human condition are, especially his social insights are the genius that I think Dostoevsky has for psychological insights with the insights Dickens being a little bit more like how people act with each other. When he kind of is going into narration mode and talking about one of his characters, his and meditations like how, are incredible. And I good. like how he he's constantly playing with different character types and character archetypes to bring them into different social scenarios to show you what kind of is, is like to engage with people who are not I mean, you get to experience engaging with people you probably wouldn't generally engage with just because you don't know people like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love the way that Dickens can have these thunderous insights on the human condition and yet also be one of the best pros. I know we joke when we're not recording, we joke a lot actually about Dickens' verbosity, <laughs> you know, and how he'll take... Yeah, something well, that could be said in one, twelve one of, words. One of your bits is like, "Why don't you do one of your bits?" Is like, "Say, I want you to tell me about the weather, but like Dickens would." So, like, it's a snowy day outside. <clears throat> okay, so yeah, I have this little bit where I say, "How would Dickens say it?" So I'm going to tell you, it's snowing outside. Verily, hearken unto all of your auditory systems, whether or not they be willing, for thouest though it is only September, and thouest though you might think, hey. Yay, September is not a month for chill nor cold. And yet somehow, 
reality doth show its white blustery face and, and as the condensation <laughs> descends and, for, and, and as this cold droplets frozen rain <laughs> falls slowly to the ground so it does also with my thoughts and feelings about yesterday today and tomorrow <laughs> so dickens has a propensity and in fact had at the time because he was paid by the word a financial motive to write more than he needed to and that is incredibly obvious (laughs) it is incredibly obvious here's what i would say usually that's annoying with someone as talented as dickens it's a joy yeah for me personally dickens is one of the few people who's as famous as he is that i think totally deserves his fame and here's why two there's a lot of reasons two main reasons one the meditations on the human condition which are to me as good as steinbeck or dostoevsky or any of the other greats who are good at that number two the way he writes just floods me with joy (laughs) even i was listening to you read it the other day and you were laughing out loud yeah just by yourself just when you can have a writer makes you laugh out loud when you're by yourself you know that's something special that's not easy to do you know his uh, propensity for surprise, surprising you with things you already know about yourself, I yeah. think is my favorite thing about him. Where it's suddenly like, oh, yes, I've definitely had that common thought. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I would also say, too, because I know that this is a daunting book, if you've made it this far, <laughs> I don't actually think y- this, this is not a book you would have had to read, I think, to enjoy this podcast on this book. I think that because it's not a plot-driven book at all. You're not really missing much by not knowing the plot. And if we can give a good sketch of the characters just by describing them, it's good. But I will say, I think it's a experiential favor to do yourself to read Dickens. Yes. You know? yes. I don't know if I've read more single novels by an author other than like maybe C.S. Lewis because of the Narnia books. But like... I've read, obviously, David Copperfield. I've read Tale of Two Cities, Great Expectations, Oliver Twist, Christmas Carol, Bleak House, Nicholas Nickleby, Pickwick Papers, and one other one I'm not thinking of right now. And it never lets me down. This is this is a writer who never has once let me down with a book that I found boring or hard. Like, not easy to read, but worth the, the, worth the work put in because of all of the humor. Like, there is so much humor in Dickens, you yeah. know? Yeah, and, like, it's insights into the, to social. I think that you really hit the nail on the head with that. It's insights into social interaction that you wouldn't necessarily have come up with yourself. But when you think about it, you're like, oh, that is a ridiculous way that we interact with one another. And insights told in such a humorous and relatively inoffensive way that it can subvert people's egos Yes, to really think about what he's saying when he gives that insight. Which is incredible because it's not, he's not using a hammer. He's not heavy handed. It's the lightest and deftest touch to give such a thoroughgoing analysis of what is happening to and, people. And like, here's the thing it's not as if he's addressing issues that are easy or light. We're addressing death, we're addressing things like orphans, we're child abuse, child abuse, cultures that shame people to the point of, of utter personal destruction infidelity yeah. in this book people's parents dying you know like the toll that that takes unhappy marriages mm-hmm. uh marriages falling apart alcoholism poverty <laughs> you yeah. know like oh and poverty obviously is dickens like yeah kind of, like, yeah, that's yeah, his yeah bread and butter <laughs> <laughs> well uh hopefully he gets bread and butter. <laughs> 
That's if part you of can, the poverty. If you could spare a pence to <laughs> yeah. like buy a pie. Yeah, or... you're right. I just that totally. I love I love that thought, David, because it's true. Like he he runs the whole gamut of human social problems, which is again why he's considered such a great person for the plight of the working class in England in the 19th century because his novels really brought a lot of that to life and I mean it it does a little bit in this book there are other books where that happens a lot more but never when you're reading this do you get the feeling at least I don't get the feeling that he's preaching at you it's just description he's telling a story great at describing things and what is good too I think is that when he is giving a like almost a prescription right when he's saying okay here's what should be done he's kind of using himself as the referent for his own analysis and diagnosis so he'll he'll use himself as the weakness that should be overcome like something that he's done or said or like his own thoughts about the world so it's not like he's putting it on other people but it's like hey this is kind of something that i've noticed about myself it works for me and yet because of the way he can write it it's he has a style that's his own that is maybe only Shakespeare has a more Shakespearean style than you can say. No one wrote like Dickens before and no one's written quite like Dickens after. Yeah, you I know? can't think of anyone that you say, well, that reads a lot like a Dickens novel. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Only Dickens. Like you can't say Austin sounds like Dickens. You can't say you can't say Steinbeck or yeah. Mark Twain or any of them. None of them. You're right. And it might be even that other authors are better storytellers. Like, I'm, I'm not going to say Dickens is the best plot-driven writer. No. He doesn't write these, like, enrapturing mysteries, like, what's going to happen? Yeah, in fact, often it's kind of in your face what's going to happen. Not always, and, and that's the cool part, is that he is intelligent enough of a, of a narrative crafter that he does surprise you. Mm-hmm. I love how he paid attention to the world around him. Yes. Like, it's impossible for him to have said the things he said in his books without being a very close and attentive observer of his society and the people around him and the way they acted with each other, which is incredible, you know? So anyway, I think we should probably start with David, our yes, titular our, character. Our hero, our hero, one might say, of he, sorts. Yeah, I guess he's kind of a hero. Definitely he's, our narrator. He's a soft-spoken hero, I would say. He's... I don't know. Like we were just talking about this before the podcast too. He re- a lot of Dickens, as it were, good guy characters are kind of similar. You know, they're these kind of soft spoken. I'm thinking of, you know, obviously David Copperfield. I'm thinking of Nicholas Nickleby, Even Oliver Twist, Oliver or... Twist a little bit. Yep. Yeah. Even if you think about like someone in, like obviously not Scrooge in A Christmas Carol, but someone like Bob Ratched. Is that his name? The guy who works for Scrooge. Yeah. The one who who has who has Tiny Tim Timmy, is his Tiny son, Tim, yeah. yeah. And so, like a lot of the main characters in his books that are the good guys are kind of I've noticed anyway, and I'm not a scholar, so I could be totally off about this. But my impression of them is like they're kind of soft spoken. They're usually very talented at something. They kind of keep to themselves, but they they get requested to solve problems for others because they're good they're, friends. Like yeah. they they're loyal, good head on their shoulders well-adjusted, have a sense of humor, but aren't brash or loud about it. Pretty you romantic, know? usually. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like a little bit of... He has a type know, for hopeless, his heroes, right? <laughs> hopeless romantics. But anyway, so the like we said at the beginning, the start of this book starts in 
uh, the rookery, I believe it is, which is funny because there's no rooks there, <laughs> which is a joke <laughs> that Peggy and can't get over. And so uh, one of the first things I noticed is when um, Mr. Murdstone comes to the rookery to start kind of flirting with David's mom, whose name is Clara. As the story goes, and we kind of get a bit of more of a sense of Murdstone's firmness and his intolerance of anything that a child would naturally do as a child, I noticed my first thought was like, man, David can't do his lessons, like his school lessons with the Murdstones are around because he's scared of them. And that is a great insight, <laughs> right? Like his, he's so good at school, as soon as the Murdstones are around watching him, he's fearful and he can't do it. And then they punish him for that. And I just want it like that was such another huge thought to me on what fear fear is such a hobbling emotion to minds, you know, and do you think Murdstone knows that he's not going to get anything out of David if David is scared? That's another thought I had, too. Well, I'm confused by Murdstone as a character because he doesn't really seem to have a lot of depth in even his intention and like I cannot figure out his motives. It's like, kind of like a Puritan. Does some he does he ilk. love Clara? Like he says he loves Clara and he seems to be kind of guarding her from something in David. But at the end of my analysis of him, I, I'm just struck by the fact that he seems to just be marrying people to get their money yeah maybe i also got a little bit of sense with him too that he he wants a wife because it's more socially proper to be married do you know like it's it's he has better standing in his society or in his town as a married man and not a bachelor yeah so if you're gonna be married i guess someone who potentially has an estate <laughs> but he doesn't seem to want like, what does he want out of a marriage? I uh, Maybe it is just social status. But, like, he doesn't even seem to have that many friends. He's, and But his friends do seem to be kind of more in the underbelly of society, like mm-hmm. these factory owners and these... Well, he's he's also kind of the... And this is like a... Uh, well, how do you say it? A Dickensian? I think that's how you say it. Dickens. <laughs> a, a Dickensian stereotype of a villain, too, where he's very... Oh, what's that word? Pecuniary? He's very severe, too. What's that word for, like, so ruthless with money? Pecuniary? He's ruthless when it comes to money. Like, it's it's so... The wealth creation... I Like, he's a stereotype of these Dickens villains who are willing to squeeze every little drop of blood out of every stone around them to get the last dollar. And it, it is a total stereotype of the capitalist. Like, I'm going to squeeze every wage out of you... And you're just lucky to even have this goddamn job. Fuck you very much, kind of thing, you know. Like that is kind of his stance on business. And he, yeah, like it's funny. Dickens is very much like a champion of the working class, but he glorifies the managerial class far more than almost any author ever. Like his <laughs> heroes all become members of the bourgeoisie managerial class and they they rise out of poverty but interestingly they are of that bourgeois or managerial class but they don't treat the people around them like as if they're tyrants they they, they have a love for people in the lower class like a particular Mm -hmm. fondness and i mean 
could it be more obvious than that Dickens is fond of the lower class? Like yeah. he he thinks they are more moral. He sees more wholesomeness in them. Like who are the heroes? Like who are the the shining stars of this book? It's the Peggotty family. Oh, yeah, you're pointing out a really interesting thing about Dickens right now. Is that he has these people, these ruthless capitalists, let's say, like the people who own the factories in his books, or someone like Scrooge, right? Like Scrooge is a perfect example. Murdstone is a Scrooge that doesn't change. <laughs> like if yeah. you've never read that and, book, that's a good way to think Scrooge, about it. He's a poor Scrooge. He's yeah. a poor man Scrooge, yeah. right? I, but he's not like he's not poverty stricken, I don't think. But he's no, not quite as rich as but, Scrooge. But you even take the uh the headmaster and the and the teachers at the boarding the first boarding school that David goes to. They're very poor. Yeah. Like, it's obvious that they don't have a lot of money, and they're basically milking these kids for money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, like, this class of people that are the, the villainous overlord capitalist class. The working class are exploited by everyone. But then, yeah, you're right. His heroes are the ones who kind of have social mobility, move up, like David obviously does, and even, in the end, the MacIbers do, <laughs> which seems yeah. unbelievable to me, <laughs> given what they, <laughs> the things they're faced with throughout the book. So the people that were at Traddles... Traddles is like the people in the book that we're supposed to like are originally members of the lower class, but they have social mobility. They move up to what would, I mean, it's not like 1850s England exactly had a middle class. We might say they're the middle class there. They would be kind of like poor, poor rich people, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> they're not, they're not like, they're not lords and ladies. They're not, they, they get, they get some kind of social capital. Yeah. All of his heroes do like, he seemed, I think he I think he is kind of obsessed with the middle class. Yeah. And, like, and back then there wasn't yeah. really one, but anyone yeah, like, who was kind of in it. David liked. Copperfield becomes a renowned writer, like Dickens did in his own time, right? Yeah. Traddles becomes a renowned lawyer. The MacIbers become some magisterial, or I think he becomes like a magistrate or something like that, or like a person of note in Australia when they move there. And, and Agnes, too, like grows. I can't remember exactly... If she has a vocation or not, but she's like, so his heroes do have good social standing, even if they're not and extremely wealthy. Interesting, you look at David particularly. Yeah, you know, he's born into not wealth, but like comfortable. Descends into utter poverty, like really, really bad, and then reascends to fame and fortune. It's it's a very uh, funny, um, I would say, American story. Yeah, right? like which is uh, humorous because I I well I don't know I don't know Dickens' opinion on America because America would have been. Still, you know, like a relatively young country when Dickens was writing and his, who knows what he would have thought of it. I'm sure he wrote about it, but. <laughs> it would have been just before the Civil War, actually. Yep. And so this also dovetails with that fear thing I talked about earlier, though. So there's a scene when he, he's in the school, in the, with, in the, the headmaster, school, the boarding yeah. school, and there's a placard on his back saying that he bites people, right? And he says one of the things that's so interesting about his self-reflections there is that this is a sign that hurts even if no one is around because he knows the sign is there and he carries the shame with him. And I think that that's such an interesting literal version of how shame works maybe. Like the things that you are scared of of yourself or ashamed of of yourself that even if no one's around to see it, you know it's there so it's still with you. And obviously because he's a child still in this situation, those two things about like fear in his lessons and that placard on his back creating shame is such a huge sticking point for me. A, because I work with kids. So I see how mental problems or mental fears really can bring them down and hurt their feelings and 
damage and and like ruin their day <laughs> basically and i mean you think about how a bad feeling can ru- like make you feel bad as an adult imagine having that feeling without any of the mental toolkit yet <laughs> to do, deal do you, with do this. you remember having feelings like that yeah i do actually now they weren't so much like in the story david copperfield these are feelings put on david by adults around him I wouldn't say that was the case me, but I mean, yeah, I was bullied a bit as a kid and, and those things do stick with you. Like maybe I am weird cause I'm homeschooled. Like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, or like, especially when I was playing hockey, like a lot of the guys on my team would use crude words that I didn't know the meaning of yet. And so if they ask you point blank and you don't know, like you're an ignoramus because every 13 year old boy should know <laughs> what a lesbian is basically or like that <laughs> right, kind of thing. Right. And, and so those kind of things now, again, like those are stupid examples of a real emotion that I think affects. And I'm just saying like, think of the tragedy when adults put that onto kids. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think that that's one of the, one of the huge motifs of this book is the horrible things that adults can do to kids, even if they think that they're doing it out of some sort of like stiff upper lip goodness. It's a goodness that I don't think holds true under scrutiny. And obviously with someone like David Copperfield, it doesn't stick. But imagine many people without his mental prowess where it would, right? Well, that this is actually my biggest criticism of the book. Like you said, it doesn't. It's not a plot-driven book, but we the the development we see in David Copperfield seems to be completely uh, detached from the trauma of his youth. It, it is a little right? unrealistic. Like he he comes out of this not just fine, but like basically perfectly well adjusted. Where where are his psychological problems? Like this, I mean, in yeah, a sense, it yeah, might yeah, yeah. tell you a little bit of what Dickens thought of his own. Yeah, <laughs> his own yeah. Dickens himself. maybe had a high opinion of his own. Well, I mean, maybe this is a joke, but maybe because he's writing about himself as a six year old, as if he could think like a thirty five year old. Maybe he had the emotional toolkit of a thirty five year old when he was six to handle. Yeah, it, right? like because you think about it, uh, basically, there's a there's a whole period of time where he's just living with the Murdstones by himself. Peggy's gone and is super lonely and all he does is read books and yet he seems to come out of this pretty normal mm-hmm. and basically he's abused as he's a child laborer like he's and yet he comes back and, and is a perfectly well-adjusted eight, 17 or 18 year old right mm-hmm. and and then goes on to, to fame and fortune rather easily although there is a particular scene of the book that I want to go into about that that I find amazing so that's my biggest criticism is that while I really appreciate all of the insights that Dickens is giving us through this character, David, he doesn't seem to have the, the, I mean, I'll take myself for example. So you were, you gave some examples of shame that you felt. And I think one of the big shames that I felt in my life was that I, I always knew I was going to be great. Like I had complete megalomania. Like I was, I was going to be great. In fact, like I was going to be prime minister. And or, I would guess uh, there was a kind of an undercurrent of a teleology. Oh, going huge on teleology right? yeah. and like fatalism. Yep. Like I was yep. destined for greatness. I, I was totally going relate to, be great. to that feeling. And 
how audacious for a eight to twelve year old to be telling all his friends how great he was going to be. But they didn't. I wish it only lasted from the time I was ten to, to, to tw- <laughs> or eight to twelve. I yeah. would say it lasted well into my into my mid twenties, mm-hmm. maybe even later. <laughs> yeah, and that psychological reality caused me all kinds of shame because mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't living up to who I was or and also complete incongruence with reality because I wasn't actually looking at myself for who I was instead I was looking at this perfected version of myself and saying that's who I should be and because I knew I wasn't like I inherently knew because I was able to connect with reality but I still believed I was that thing it was constant tension and shame and yeah. and all this stuff and I just don't see any of that in Dickens. No, right? no, no, definitely not in this book. <laughs> and maybe maybe and I'm willing to I'm willing to bend on this and say maybe some people don't go through things like that mm-hmm. and and do end up being or can really handle well, trauma or, better. Exactly. And and potentially Dickens was one of those. People. Yeah, well, I would better than average chance of someone who goes through the, this kind of trauma and, and going into the scathe of someone like Dickens considering to me, he's like a world-shattering talent, you know. So maybe he does. Maybe he did have, like Dickens himself, had a brain that is just so kind of almost in a weird way genetically resilient. Well, in I a think way actually, that I- <laughs> Elon Musk is a really good example of this, to be sure. honest, because you consider that he was like he was abused by his father physically, like in terms of I'm um, not sexually, but beaten and had a terrible upbringing and basically his family fled it can be a galvanizing force fled potentially south africa and yet he has it seemingly excelled and succeeded and been able to analyze that very well of course we all but again we all carry our chains with us right and i just i'm wondering where david's chains are yeah and what there is one example of that i want to get into oh uh, yeah no but... i i think to me his chains are his kind of tunnel vision and blindness to the women yeah, as naivety when it comes to when he's in reality when he's love. in love as i say with yeah. quotes right like yes. he uh infatuation and- he kind of exemplifies uh an almost winston churchill type version where he'll um he'll find the right woman after he tries all the other ones <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing but it, like and i don't mean that in a crude way like no. he just he kind of falls in love with every girl that i know even looks at him I mean, kind of it, thing uh, which but, i to be fair i do relate to oh well this, this is what i wanted to say i've been i i think this is one of the genius of dickens is is how he describes male infatuation is arguably the best you're gonna come across yeah because he makes you laugh about it because it is ridiculous like when he falls in love with when i think he's 17 and he falls in love with that 30 year old and then is yeah. crushed when she gets yeah. engaged to someone yeah. her own age. and he's pining after every little girl that's even noticing him <laughs> you <Yeah>. know <laughs> not little girl like any girl that notices him he's head over heels in love with and can't believe he's not already married to her kind of thing it's almost a caricature except that i have that part of my remembrances of a younger version of myself that also fell in love with every nice comment or kindness or even smile smile invitation to hang out even if it was with a group you know why would she ask me to hang out unless she wanted me there kind of thing that tautology aside the deeper point of it is she wants me there especially (laughs) you know no just being polite kind of thing and yet well I will say maybe a major growth of David in the book is his ability to realize 
that he's been stupid about women most of his life. <laughs> I think, well, yeah, that is probably the realization that he has and the the biggest growth that he has because he it, it's actually a flaw that becomes a strength. So we actually do see that character arc there in that. I, and I guess outside of that, uh, what uh, Oh, yeah, okay, here's he one. Here's here's what I'd say. David Copperfield, as as he gets older, when he becomes an adult, he is incredibly good at noticing and admiring people who deserve it. True. Right? Like True. Ham, when Ham sacrifices himself. My, my, but the thing is, is, he seems to admire Ham from the beginning. Yeah. He's got a really great intuition for who he should kind of put his stock in. He kind of knows somehow, there is an exception here, but he kind of knows Traddles, his friend Tommy Traddles, when they're young, he's kind of this chubby kid that no one likes and is a weirdo. But he notices something in him and he kind of sticks with him and Traddles becomes his biggest ally when he's older and, and a very competent one when it comes to his lawsuit. And he kind of sees this about Traddles, right? He kind of sees something in the McIbers that he yeah, likes yeah. that even if they never really see it but he in sees themselves. that even from a child right mm-hmm. like yeah. and that's the thing like there's no development well maybe dickens was just a precocious motherfucker yeah. <laughs> like we don't know you know <laughs> and that's what he put into david copperfield like yeah. this this could be like perhaps dickens was this kind of thoughtful and, and it wouldn't surprise me yeah it wouldn't a, surprise me i all, all i'm saying is i guess there's Perhaps it's uh, envy on my part, but I wish that I had that little development that was necessary sure, yeah. in my life. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're going to be envious of someone, Dickens is not a bad, <laughs> not, not bad. one because not he's just rubric, so great. Yeah. But this actually dovetails really nice because the exception I just mentioned is I think the one character in the book he is kind of bamboozled by ethically, let's say. Like he... um he has such good in- ethical intuition with basically everybody else, but there's one friend, Steerforth, that kind of pulls the wool over his eyes because Steerforth yes. is a little bit of a bully, but not really. He sticks up for David, but he kind of uses a, a psychophantic or sophist argument to get one of the teachers fired early in the book, and he just kind of feels like he's vain and arrogant, but puts up with everybody and is good humored about his arrogance like he knows that the common folk can't really help it kind of thing and then his great moral infraction in the book is that he steals away emily little emily from ham like she's engaged to ham peggotty who is (laughs) david's maid peggotty's brother's brother's nephew nephew kind of thing it's a weird relationship type anyway it's like related to the so there's this emily and this ham and they are engaged to be married and Steerforth steals her away like convinces her to basically and promising her a life she wouldn't otherwise yeah. have and she had always because funnily enough like they call david copperfield like little lord right like mm-hmm. because he is and this this goes back into classism but it goes into a lot of things and i i think the reason that dickens points this out as a social phenomenon is it's an experience that i've had myself is when you think of someone as superior to you mm-hmm. in whatever means so like l- let's say that you know you were to get the opportunity to sit with Sam Harris or sure. like I was to get the opportunity to, to whatever, like sit with Elon Musk or something. Mm-hmm. You immediately 
the, their treatment of you can be different than someone that you tr- consider your equal and you'll admire them for it. So like something that you would kind of hope a friend would just do automatically, if that person will do it for you, you you're incredibly overwhelmed by their generosity. Yeah. Uh, like an example would be like if writing a reference letter, if my friend wrote me a reference letter, it would be like, oh, well, thank you. Mm-hmm. But if my, you know, if someone that I admire writes me a reference letter, it becomes a who has some possession. sort of platform or standing exactly and and in this case it it seems like the relationship between david when he's at the school he has no standing and he's and he's he's wearing that sign that he bites people and yet i can't think of the word right now but basically steerforth takes him under his wing sort of yeah and and still condescends to him all the time and calls him daisy when he first meets up well this is exactly what i made a note upon is that because he venerates steerforth so much he's always feels like he's putting his foot in his mouth when he's talking around him right and so i thought like this is it's not an equal friendship if you have to worry about how what you'll say affects someone and so you really have to calculate, like the the mental calculation of what you want to say. If you're putting a lot of energy into that, I don't think it's an equal friendship. So uh, one of the scenes that fascinates me is when he takes Steerforth up to meet the Pegatys, a place more. It seems to be more northern England. It's on the coast, lots of fishing and stuff. And what fascinates me is how proud of Steerforth David Copperfield is. Mm-hmm. When like, look at my high-class friend. No, not only look at my high-class friend, but look at how gracious and kind and entertaining and charismatic my high-class friend is to these people that I love but are obviously, like, a little bit dumber and a little bit, you know, don't have the same qualities that he does. And I guess the question I wanted to ask you on that point is, have you ever experienced introducing uh, someone that you admire to people that you love? Ooh, that's a good question. I have definitely introduced people I admire and love to other people I like. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. But someone I admire, I mean, I don't know. I'd have to think about that more. It's possible, but I think that most of the people that I admire... I either have never met or they've been in my life a lot. <laughs> yeah, so so, <laughs> so it's hard right. to know, right? Like yeah. I haven't. Um, I mean, okay, here's something that popped to mind, and it was exciting. The first year I lived in South Korea was like 2011 into 2012, and I came back to Canada in, uh, I guess, July of 2012. And August of that year, my family for several years before that had gone to vacation on the Oregon coast. And this time around, I had made a handful of friends in Korea who lived in, you know, the Western United States in uh, Northern California. And so there was three three friends that I invited to come up. And it was really crazy to have friends that I met in South Korea who live in California come and hang out at the beach house with me and my parents and one of my sisters. And so, yes, I have, like in the sense that I admire my friends. Yes, people I admire to people I love. I mean, in a sense... Well, yeah, I I think that's a good example because I actually think that this is one of the emotions that is unique to Dickens, is how how well he captures this. He captures it particularly well in Great Expectations with Pip and Joe. Right. But I think he captures it really well here where you when you admire someone... And then you introduce them to people that you kind of adore and love. 
there's this moment of of apprehension and tension. It's like, will the person I admire give their their blessing and affirmation <laughs> to the people that I love? Yes. And <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be honest, there's probably no other um, novel that I can think or, or writer that I can think of who captures that emotion so well yes. as Dickens. And I, I can't help but think, what is it about us as people <laughs> where we... Because, like, why do we admire these people? Why do their opinions matter so much to us about people we love? Like, I'm talking about, like, okay, like, if you introduce someone to your family, and I think this this emotion is most commonly experienced mm-hmm. by bringing a uh, partner home to meet your family. Yeah, sure. Would be, it would be, I think, probably the most common example. But, like, I've had the example where, say, like, I've worked in politics a lot, so a politician perhaps that I admired, introducing them to my brother or right. to my parents mm-hmm. or my sisters would be an experience like that. And it just fascinates me, because this is something that I've been processing psychologically that I think Dickens really captures well, is why do their opinions matter more? Maybe they don't matter more, but what is that emotion? Where does it come from? Okay, where that emotion comes from, I don't know for sure. My my guess would be it's something like there is a aspiration that we have somewhere in ourselves that we can't quite figure out what it is or name it, but somehow this person exemplifies it. And so I actually think it's a – like what you're describing, it makes me think it's something that's actually a potential lack in ourselves that we – attribute to somebody else like oh they're just a, like a little bit more eloquent than me or they're a little bit more smart than me or or they have a better opinion on this subject and they've done that two or three times and so now I've kind of attributed that to them as an identity marker as an essential factor of their personhood so what you were saying just now it actually reminded me of two things one kind of funny one I think actually gets a little bit at the heart of what you're talking the funny one is that that emotion I actually have running pretty hard in the other direction where I'm kind of sometimes more nervous about someone I bring around's behavior is going to make the people I love less impressed with. Me. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. Like yeah. uh yeah, <clears throat> the association you might have Luke, who's this person? Why are they here? Like what are they doing? Like they're if it's like a boorishness or something like that. Like right. now I I think I've gotten a lot better with that as I've gotten older. <laughs> like, well, no, you can all make your own minds up about any individual person you don't even know how. But here's, okay, here's actually a really good example of what you're driving at that I rem- that it came to me while you were talking. So when I was um, probably 22 in my last year of university, I was um, the president of a the Resident Students Association of the University of Calgary. So in the very, very small universe of university of calgary residents I, I was a big fish in that pond kind of thing in a you know a, a meaningless pond but it was a <laughs> pond that i was a big fish in and so because of that i had a good relationship with the night manager and kind of head security guy at the campus bar and so the campus bar it was McEwen hall mac hall the people who ran the den, which was the bar, their staff were also responsible for security at the concert hall because there's also a concert hall in this building. And I remember that I was talking to this guy about a band. It was, I think it was the Silver Sun Pickups. So this oh, band yeah, I really I like liked. And I, yeah. I saw that show it was great. And I remember him talking 
to me and you know i was 22 he was probably about 38 to 40 you know kind of thing and he was and i was like gushing like oh my gosh you got silver sun pickups they're so great you got to meet them you're so lucky what are they like you know i'm like fanboying out kind of worshiping almost these the silver sun pickups the band he's like well you know they're just people (laughs) (laughs) and like right that that is something that is actually so stuck with me is that these super well i mean it's not like the silver sun pickups are (laughs) the beatles or anything right like not not that level of fame but at that stage in my life they were a really big band and they were a really big band to me and i was gushing and 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 his kind of like deadpan almost like why are you so excited about this and he wasn't being rude about it but he was like well they're just people you know they just they're just normal you just talk to them they talk back they speak the same language he's fine (laughs) and i was like holy shit, I've put all of this stock in this conversation about venerating this band as something above me. And this guy's just not having any of it because what do they have that that's he's above lacking? You. Yeah. Right? yeah. Like what do they have that he's lacking other than they're better musicians, let's say. And I think that that kind of heuristic has stuck with me where when I look at Steerforth and David Copperfield, I see David not able yet to understand that Steer Forth is just a person. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad we went. Not not where I necessarily thought we would go with this, but I completely agree. And more than that, I think it's Dickens trying to tell all of us something, Mm -hmm. which is that your admiration doesn't actually correspond with character necessarily. Right. And what I think is so profound about David Copperfield, particularly in, in the Emily leaving moment, is he he's honest and says, if I had seen Steerforth right after that, I probably still would have admired him and loved him. Like that was the depth of the adoration. Yeah. That, and, and and not only adoration, but like someone who protects you when you're vulnerable and, and gives you a sense of security when you're not feeling safe, mm-hmm. especially when you're younger. Uh, I have examples like this in my in my work environment. There were times where I felt very vulnerable, like and and politics is a very vulnerable game. Mm-hmm. And and when and there are people that have protect, highs and lows. Yeah, protected protected me when I felt that way. And you feel an incredibly strong bond to those people. Do you feel a sense of debt? Uh, I I, th- I think it's more uh, gratitude, okay, right? Like you're gr- you're grateful that they didn't have to do that, right? They didn't have to protect you, and they did. And I think he feels that, and then he realizes that this person who who did this kindness to him is actually morally flawed to a point of destroying something beautiful mm-hmm. for his own entertainment. Yeah, like uh, there, there, it is a kind of a point of no return. For type Dave, of moral yeah. infraction because Steerforth, he doesn't literally steal Emily, but he convinces her to leave with him to, with for a no better life. With no intention of good of yeah. goodness to her, like, he's not, not going to marry her. He, yeah, <laughs> he's he, not going to he's not going to live up to the social expectation of their times to make her a proper lady. No, because like that, that would because it would ruin him according to his own yeah. mother, right? So like, he wants a, which is an interesting thing to get into later. But he wants a tryst. Well, I guess we can get into it now, like. How weird to live in a society like we, I don't. I really feel like we don't live there anymore, particularly in Canada and America, Canada especially. But like, how weird to live in a society where you would be ruined as an individual based on who you marry. Yeah. Like, and I guess that that is an older version of something that more recently we went through as a society, which is that it, it, if you loved someone 
of the same gender, you would ruin your life, mm-hmm. right? And and I'm ju- I just find it so profound how foreign that feels to me now. Yeah, because of how like low class Emily is compared yeah. to your fourth. Yeah, it's and, just a class thing and, for and, them. And all that is is just it's it's equally arbitrary to loving someone because they're the same gender as you. Yet one seems so ridiculous, mm. right? And the other, there's still people who genuinely want to stop people from doing that. And I find it so odd that people want to have that kind of social control. Like, who are these people who are going to ruin Steerforce's life because he loves someone who's poorer than him? Well, I think probably it's a it's a kind of a social norm at the time. Oh no, that I, is, I understand. That yeah. is augmented and probably intensified by someone like Steerforth and his mother's psychology where they build it up probably bigger than it would be. I don't think Steerforth is a good enough person to, even if it didn't ruin him, I still don't think he'd marry Emily. Like I think he just, he still just like, that's a, that's a convenient excuse for Steerforth, the character in the book. He just wanted that little dalliance. Well, I also think that there does seem to be this quality in him of, of wanting power. Like he wanted power over the, the schoolmaster. Yeah. yeah. He wanted power. But I, I think the thing with Emily is very much like he wanted to he wanted to show that he could steal a woman <laughs> from, from anyone. From anyone. Yeah. And I think probably some good old fashioned lust in there too. Yeah. Now, the thing that's interesting is that Stuart is actually not incorrect when he says it would ruin him. But I think that that's actually also at a maybe at a sociological level part of what Dickens prerogative is to unearth and pillory is the part of his culture that says, Hey, if you want well, to marry someone in a different this is class the than genius you, of Dickens, yeah, right? is that uh, this he is why is a I think critic, like he's legit, like a constant, yeah, but a critic without being he's preachy. He's less uh, obvious of a critic than some, like someone like Mark Twain. He just lays it out there for you, you know, and yet it's there. Like, I, I think. One of the, I think it's a blistering critique that he does on everything. This right? is why I think Dickens is personal flaws aside, and I know Dickens himself had a lot of personal and interpersonal flaws, and didn't always treat people very well. His legacy is upper echelon for what he's done for humanity. I think, especially in a de- in the developed Western world of our empathy and our attitude towards people of different classes and our relationships and what we should think about them, you know, yeah. his humanizing of them. I feel like why David himself can't understand quite yet that Steerforth is so shitty is because he still can only, his growing brain still only has these images of the parts that Steerforth looked out for him. And he's like turning an intentional blind eye to, you know, the malfeasances of well, Steerforth. He, even, he kind of even like... <laughs> It reflects on that and seems to agree that he was overlooking those things. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask you because you've read this book yeah. again more recently. Like, is there a change of heart David has? Like, does he kind of at some point admit Steerforth was a shitbag? Oh yeah, like, yeah. Pretty basically <laughs> after the Emily thing, he like he feels betrayed, and yet even in that betrayal, he he battles with the, the mm-hmm. admiration that he yeah, had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think that's a good take on all of that. Like, that's a really important growth thing for david copperfield yes you know yes it <laughs> seems to be one of the in one yeah. of the few and far between <laughs> ones right hey everybody 
David and I just want to take a second to say thank you for listening. Making this podcast has been a great experience, and we really appreciate all of you who choose to spend some time with us. Part of our goal is to be super open about everything we talk about on the podcast. If you have any questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas, feedback, clarifications, or praise, please send us an email at reallytruefiction at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. Also, if you get your podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you get notified when a new episode is released. If you feel so inclined, please leave a rating or review on iTunes. That is a really good way to help new listeners find the show. And please pass the show along to anyone who you think may enjoy it. Again, thank you so much for listening, because as I'm sure you have gathered, we love talking. So, other things I liked and noticed about David. So, one of the great parts of this book is how much David's aunt helps David early in his life, right? Uh, she raises him. Obviously, she has a lot of money, helps him, lives in her house. She educates or pays for his education. And yet, as they get older, it's now him who gets to help his aunt who is destitute. And I made the note of over enough over a long enough timeline, anything can be reciprocated. Okay, this is my favorite <laughs> you know? thing. About- this is like the fable yeah. of the lion and the mouse, right? The mouse... Ooh, yeah, who chooses the lion the ropes, doesn't yeah. eat, and then the mouse chooses the ropes to save the lion. Anyway, yeah, sorry, continue. But this is my favorite thing about David Copperfield the, the, as a character. This is the quality that I wanted to dig into about him that I admire. So we're so we've talked a little bit, and I'm sure I'm sure we'll talk more about. He seems to fall too easily in love and is constantly falling in love with women. But what he has is determination and discipline. Yeah, and so when confronted, so so <laughs> the uh, picture that we get painted for us by Dickens that I think is so beautiful is a man who remains constant regardless of circumstance. So we have even as a boy through to the man who ends up marrying Agnes, what we see is someone whose character is not it, he has an internal locus of control. So. When suddenly he's wealthy and his aunt has given him all this stuff, he still loves the Peggotties and he still showers love on his old nurse and admires the qualities of Mr. Peggotty and Ham and and the wholesomeness of of them. He remembers his roots, right? He remembers his roots, loves his roots, admires and uh, elevates his roots. And then when everything is taken from him, so, so you know the the in the words of Rudyard Kipling, you know when the, the risk it all one turn of pitch and toss and lose and start again <laughs> at your beginnings and yeah. never breathe a word about your loss. Mm-hmm. He doesn't. What does he do? He says, "Okay, well, I want to marry Dora." Yeah. And the only way I can do that is I have to change my stripes. I have to I have to put my nose to the grindstone and I got to work my butt off. Yeah. And what does he do? He works his butt off. Yeah, he sure does. <laughs> right. And <laughs> and he just. And I love it because he builds this mental, um, I don't know what we want to call it, a mental palace, which is actually a forest. And everything he equates to, okay, I got to cut through this tree. Got to mm-hmm. cut through this next tree. Got to yeah. get this tree down and move on to the next yeah. one. And teaches himself complex, difficult things in a disciplined manner Yeah, because he's set a goal for himself. He's set a vision for the life that he wants, and he pursues it. Oh, it's, it's, it is so admirable. You're right. And when he does all that, he doesn't forget who, who helped him. Yeah. You no, know, like he, he's no. so true to the people who invested in him. And so actually, though, like I, 
I have a weird idea that occurred to me in this and that I wanted to float by or see what you think is like, what do you think of the idea as goodness as a form of self-interest? Okay. In a, in okay. a long-term reciprocal sense. Now, uh, and this is not an idea original to me either. This is like Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, talked about this a little bit too. Sure, it's not always the most noble motive, but it's one of the reasons we might want people to do good is that in the future, when they're on the back foot, the people that they did good to at one point are more willing to do good for them. I actually think <laughs> it's know? one of the most compelling arguments to have children. Yeah. I mean, my, my brother has two kids. I love them immensely, but they're a lot of work. And every, many of my friends also have children, and they're a ton of work. Yeah. And that's what I hear a lot about. And I'm like, so I'm watching the ton of work stage, and I'm like, oh, man, that value proposition is hard. To, but <laughs> That's a lot of work. <laughs> but they're putting all this work in now, but then I see my parents getting older and, and thinking, well, how can I support them? And I'm like, well, who's going to support me when I get to that point, <laughs> right? Is the state going to support me? Is like... Better have uh, some kids, David. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably. But the point is, that's a sacrifice of the present. Yeah. This is a very, um, again, Peterson-esque yeah. idea. But it's the sacrifice in the present for a better future. And not to say that you should only have kids so they can support you in your old age. But like you're right. The goodness that is displayed by his aunt to him fosters this, this deep and abiding love for one another. And he takes care of her. So the question then I want to get out a bit here because you're right do we think less of aunt betsy if part of her reasoning for helping out but david is that tells him that okay like she's she legit says to him it's not entirely selfless like i want you to take care of me okay so then forget and love me forget yeah. aunt betsy what do we think of someone who takes care of someone so that they hopefully will take care of them one day there is an intuition I have where like, well, that's not the most noble reason to do it. Like it's, or, or not the most altruistic or like, but that I have to check my own intuitions. Like, well, why do I think it's better to help someone selfless, selflessly for no particular reciprocal reason? Like what's yeah, better that, about that? that exactly? What is better about that? You know, that's like, because, question. because there, but, but the thing is though, like I feel that in myself, like I do have a kind of There's sense a, of a nobility. Thing? No, no. Yeah. It's not fairness. Cause no. fairness would be, yeah, th- that is fair. Yeah. So I obligation. Yeah. But you don't f- like, you don't want to sense that kind of obligation between family. Exactly. Right. Like there's something more beautiful, let's say in the altruism or gift giving without a sense of return. And I understand that. Like, and I, it's not even just forget about family, forget, like think of friends or even like a lover, like the, gift giving without desiring a gift back feels better than I got you a gift. Now where's my goddamn gift kind of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, that's the worst. So I think this is actually a really difficult, complex, interesting psychological thing going on here between people, because it's like the people involved in the situation and the people observing it. But I guess my temporary or on hiatus feeling about this is that, I don't actually look down too hard on people who have a self-interested motive in doing good in the world, whether it be making their name more synonymous with something worth venerating or admiring or wanting to gain more money for it kind of thing or having a foundation. My suspicion is that you actually can't do that successfully or well or sustainably if it's the prime motivation. Do you know what I mean? Here's like, what here's what I would 
Okay, this is very interesting because I, I think I, 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 I agree. Because a prime motivation that's, let's say, purely financial, I think isn't going to capture your passions quite as much as an emotional or a relationship-based one where it doesn't actually matter if they reciprocate or not. Like, I just don't think you're going to get as much dynamism out of a person in their endeavors to do good if it's reciprocal. But I think you can have that as a positive side effect down the line. Kind so of here, here, this comes down to actually my fundamental theory of success and networking and, friend, and friendship. If you are in a transactional relationship with a friend in which you say to your friend, well, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And then the idea is, well, I scratch your back three times. I'm expecting three <laughs> back scratches. Yeah. That is not a successful network. That's not a successful relationship. Sure. And the reason for that is because you're always going to be feeling like you're making a tally with the other person. My belief is that a truly successful relationship whether it's friendship, family, anything, is when both parties say your success is my success. Mm -hmm. So seeing the other party succeed because you care about them and love them so much actually feels like a success for you. But that only works if they're the same, mm -hmm. right? And that's one of the things I love about this relationship between uh, David and his aunt is they both love seeing the other do well and succeed and be happy. One of the the undersold beautiful moments of this book is David's constant reflection and joy in the relationship that his aunt has with Dick, with Mr. Dick. Yeah. The love that they have for one another, and I think it's platonic, but who, maybe not. Like, who knows? <laughs> um, it's Dick, and so it's, you know, the, 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 these things are not expressed to us. It is just beautiful, like her love for this, you know, mentally simple person who ends up being such a hero in the book. Mm -hmm. And, um, but she doesn't expect anything from him. Yeah. And yet he will do anything for her and just bringing her joy brings him joy. Mm -hmm. And it's the same for her. Yeah. So I would say, so to answer your question, is doing something because you expect another person to do good for you, good? No. No. And I would say because that expectation is the death blow to happiness. Yeah. But if if your desire is to see another person succeed by doing something for them, and it turns out the natural outcome of that between in a healthy relation and mature relationship is that they also want to see you succeed, you will get that benefit, I think. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do not think you can make a you can make a case, but I think don't think it is a good or healthy case that doing something in expectation of getting something back is good. Yeah, no, I, I actually hear what you're saying as a kind of agreement with no, my I think, synopsis, right? Like yeah. that, which is, you know, okay, okay we agree on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> like that's good. I, I think what you're calling kind of like not getting the best out of something or it's almost it's almost like it has to be kind of unspoken, like the reciprocal aspect. Of, yes, it's it, going to be unspoken because it's assumed. And uh, yeah, an assumed communicative little piece where it's like, okay, well, yeah, this is just how it is. And like maybe maybe those are the best relationships you ever had is the assumed reciprocity of helping out that you don't need to ask for. They are the best relationships that I have. Yeah, like, I have a, a some particularly mm -hmm. close friendships where they're constantly thinking of ways 
I, I know this because they, yeah. they act on it, ways to help me. Mm-hmm. And I'm also doing this. Well, and this is mirrored in the book by actually, like, I love the relationship that David and Aunt Betsy have with each other. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. it is actually well, what her, her sense of humor. And and so, so, yeah, I think unexpected, unprompted for is what I'm calling, like, a more dynamic form of relationship types. Like, your friends who help you, if you made it explicit or they really thought you were expecting them to help. I don't think they would have as creative or as much, have as much creativity or energy to help you out. And one of the things uh, about things like that is it's not just helping you when you need help. You know what I mean? It's not just being there for, for a person. It's, it's an active instead of a reactive yeah. help. Yeah. Right. It's an mm-hmm. active. Oh, I see a way to make your life better. Okay. I just had a eureka moment. Uh, not a eureka. That's overselling it and uh, too self-aggrandizing. I had a, a, a good thought, I think, on this. Is that that reciprocal, I'll scratch your back, you'll scratch mine, that kind of ma- that, that only kind of occurs to you as it manifests itself later down the line. So it's like not the plan, but it can't. I, I, what I'm saying is I don't hold it against someone if it's in the back of their mind. The prime reason I'm doing this thing is the is a, a kind of a more let's say an altruistic sense of goodness where I just I'm willing to help this person without an expectation of return, but because I kind of the subconscious or the back part of it, because I kind of know the way humans work, this probably will prompt this person to help me down the line. So it's not a bad investment. Well, right? yeah, when you build a relationship with someone, you build affection and affinity for another person. Yeah. Like when you actually build a true relationship, I think part of the underlying assumption of that is that that relationship will will maintain and continue, right? Mm-hmm. And this is something David says to Uriah, which is a great Dickens moment too. I'm not too fond of professions of humility. Oh, <laughs> it's yes. not the thing oh, if you have to say it's I love the thing. this scene. I love it's, this um, scene. It's again like, it reminds me of these famous lines. If you have to tell people you're cool, you're probably not. Yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Yeah. Or if you have to tell people you hate drama, you probably love drama. Yeah, exactly. And I think Uriah, I mean, is a great example of these. Because part of Uriah Heep, who is, I guess, the villain of the book, he just is always saying these, oh, I'm just so humble. <laughs> like, he's got that yeah. like, accent. The, the, he even admits that his humility is actually a facade for yeah for bitterness. He he admits that a little later in the book. Yeah, it's not too. at the beginning, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I mean, you kind of get the sense. Oh yeah, well yeah, there's it's a lot not, of envy and bitterness. As the it. reader, you definitely see what Uriah's up to very quickly. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's the, yeah. I mean, so does David Copperfield. It seems like there's no. I don't think there's ever a moment, even in the very moment where he first meets him, and he's like, you know, mm-hmm. a, a pale face yeah. came into the doorway. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't describe him very well, does he? <laughs> he's never. Or he like describes that. him well. Yeah, not someone you'd admire. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit, but I wanted to make it a tangible, like. So he marries Dora, and he overlooks Dora's petty dislike of Traddles and his aunt, and he's blinded by the pretty thing in front of him. Okay, you know, like so this like, is a big weakness. The relationship of with David. Dora is, I think, uh, one of my favorite actually parts of this book. I think it's it's to me it's the biggest demonstration of David's weakness, but in also the book. David's strength. I'm, okay, I'm gonna make I'm gonna make the argument that it's also a phenomenal um, reflection on dealing with your choices okay so obviously he becomes obsessed with dora and she's beautiful and his child wife feminine his and she wants to be called his child wife which in his uh, mind. to yeah. me is an immediate red flag <laughs> i i figured you the thing i like about dora is she's pretty self-aware like she knows who she is and she's pretty comfortable with it 
Now, who she is happens to not be very have much depth, but she's not pretending that she has depth. Sure, not, yeah, that's she, true. She very she much doesn't. is like, I know that I'm a child wife. Mm-hmm. I don't want your books or no, your hard no. ideas. I just want to go fly kites and play with kittens. Yeah, and like that's what she loves to do. And 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 one of the things, one of the adorable and also <laughs> good one, David. <laughs> One of the adorable <laughs> things that she does is like she's like he's writing and she just wants to spend time with him and so she just sits there with his pens and hands him another pen when he needs one. Like, who hasn't been in a relationship where something like that just means like just yeah. touches your heart? Sure, right. And the only time that they have conflict is when David's trying to change her mm-hmm. because David's uncomfortable with who she is. She's not uncomfortable with who she is. He's uncomfortable with who she is. And this goes back to what I think you were referring to by this shows his flaw because he got distracted and obsessed with a pretty girl Mm -hmm. uh, and a very attractive girl who he fell into love with, but he didn't take into account the desires of his personality, the desires of his intellectual life even the desires of his practical life like i mean well, and their this, their practical life becomes a disaster cuz she's just incapable of of taking care of And in this specific things. case that i'm bringing up he he doesn't betray Traddles and his aunt but he doesn't pay attention to the fact that she is dismissive of the two people who've probably been the most loyal to him you know like and so like that's why i think it's a flaw in his part is that oh he's yeah not... he, he he mean he's totally obsessed with with her yeah. about, about, apart from everything else but I think the interest at least this is what I and we all take different things from these things but what I found most fascinating is when he was trying to change her he was miserable right yeah. when he accepted her and loved her for who she was both were happy until she died yeah I think. You remember this better. The vit—I didn't get the same that same sense of vitality of love at the end when he realized that I definitely got the sense of like, oh yeah, he he realizes he can't change her. He should stop trying. I didn't get the sense that that made him happy. It uh, made him a happy happier in the relationship. Like I wouldn't say it made him his best self like mm-hmm. his it, there was obviously this cloud and it talks about this shadow that he instead of instead of putting the shadow between himself and dora he he kind of took the shadow into himself and and felt the discontent but didn't express it and didn't. well what i wanted to say on that point is no relationship's going to be perfect but once you've kind of made the commitment you've hunkered down and you and there's not like something catastrophically incompatible between the two people it's just it isn't what it could be the right thing to do is to say okay i'm gonna love this person and not try to make them into something they're not sure and it is the noble thing to do and it's the thing that david did to not put that discontentment onto the other person and make them Mm -hmm. suffer for your own yeah discontent you're right all of that's true and again, this is not really a live option for David in the book because of the time and the mores of his culture. But once you come to that realization, actually, probably the noble thing to do is to break up. Hmm. And I think that this is Dickens' opinion, too, on their okay, marriage. Because okay. he has this line where he says about their marriage, there can be no disparity in marriage, like unsuitability of mind and purpose. Right, like that's a direct quote about yes. David yeah, well, and the Dora's one that he's wedding. Constantly bringing up yeah. in his mind uh, the inequality well, of minds make for an unequal marriage, 
And what I'm noticing in this relationship is that when David comes to that realization where he can't change Dora and there's no point in trying and actually it's making her less happy and him less happy, once he does that, and to be fair, I'll be fair, I'll, I'll bend over backwards to be fair to David in this situation. Maybe he can be okay with her not being his peer or his equal in intellect, thoughtfulness, worldliness, even maybe emotional depth, <laughs> right? Like or it, just practice. It's very hard to see living. anything that Dora is an equal of David in. Now, maybe there are people who can swallow that pill and stick it out and enjoy it. But the thing is, the problem that I'm having with this is like, I don't actually see what David is getting out of this marriage. Well, okay, so I guess that's my contention is that maybe it's not about what you're getting out of a relationship or what you're giving. Uh, I think it takes both. Maybe this is a divergence of our thought patterns, but I, I don't think anybody, maybe even a genius like Dickens, and I think this is why Dickens is saying this, why Dickens' opinion is that they probably shouldn't be together. I honestly don't think the human is strong enough to fend off resentment off the people that they spend the most time with if the people that you spend the most time with aren't somehow in a very complicated or idiosyncratic way filling your bucket in the way you want it to be filled. So the joy that I get when someone like you, I might say, has a really great insight about a book or a movie I love, that's a kind of an earth-shattering joy or happiness I get, right? When some of my best friends, when I get texts about Star Wars jokes, right? right, right. When, when I have the people in my life who are, for lack of a better term, suitable in mind to me, that is one of my deepest joys. And I think that the resentment that would build in me for being so closely with someone who couldn't do any of the higher order things that I enjoy, that they couldn't realize that about me and build that up and have conversations with me that I wanted to have and have... To have none of those things. To, to have be, none yeah. of those things, especially with someone that is supposed to be the person I'm the closest to and spend my life with. I think that it would be unfair to that person to just, as it were, suck it up. Because A, I think I would get bitter and it would come out in really ugly ways maybe 20 years from now kind of thing. It, like that's, this, I think this is why affairs happen. <laughs> like or, in a lot of ways, divorce right? Is so but let me, let me make this point and then we'll see how you respond to it. I can agree with you that uh, in this particular case there seems to be a high level of disparity. But there is inevitably going to be disparity. Sure. And I guess my point is when David realizes that really the problem is his desire to change the other person and not so much the other person, is when, A, suddenly she becomes a lot happier. I can agree with your what I think you're going with your thought, which is basically that you should never be with someone who's that different than you, and you should avoid <laughs> that. Potentially that level of thought. mental disparity. Yeah, that, yes. That, that, yes, that level of mental disparity. I could agree with that, but well, I guess my, my counterpoint is there will always be disparity. Yeah. And how David reacts to the extreme disparity, I think, is how we should react to disparity in general. Sure. That's a totally fair point, and so, I'm willing to yeah. take. And maybe Dickens puts it so starkly to make the point that this is actually a, a hidden danger of 
not thinking about disparity, <laughs> maybe, <Yeah>. right? <clears throat> like the problem on the other end of the tunnel. Now, then, I guess that raises an interesting question of like, well, how much disparity is too much? And, and that, I think, is a and that's, question that's interesting to discuss. And I, I think... The negotiation of living, I think, com- is that kind of question. Compatibility, I agree with you. Like, I think it's better personally to not ever be with someone than to be with someone that you're completely incompatible with because that misery is is intense but i just i i guess i have a problem with the idea of compatibility itself uh in this yeah i mean that's a that's a buzz weasel word too you know like i and i i don't like words that explain too much disparity (laughs) i guess would be the you know the opposite of compatibility okay well so like how do we how do you measure your compatibility with someone is it interests (laughs) well potentially what is kind of humorous about this particular book is that it's kind of funny how thoughtful dora can be to explain her unthoughtfulness yes yeah yeah (laughs) i mean there's something kind of of wizard of ozian going (laughs) on there i think i honestly like now we're psychologizing david copperfield my armchair psychologist on him is that everything else that I get from him in the book says that he actually can't be satisfied long-term by tampering down on his desires to have intellectual talks about stuff. Like everything else that he seems to write about and talk about and be interested in involves that in some way. And that's going to inevitably come out when he comes home and wants to talk to Dora and she's going to shut it down. And I think that's going to embitter him because I don't think any single human is strong enough to not get embittered and resent even just the hormones that run through your body when it's like a self-reinforcing and so what counts as disparity or as dickens puts it inequality of mind and purpose now i think part of why dickens is great here is that it's it is kind of left intentionally about he's not like He's not giving you a detailed roadmap. He's saying, watch out for these indicators. Yeah. And watch and and, and, and discover and he, the signs earlier rather than later. And he's kind later. of waving a red flag in yeah. front of your face. Yeah. Like, look, she can only talk about her silly dog. And Which like, is, I would again reference back to a point you made earlier about how he's giving warnings without being preachy. I think if he goes into the details of like, okay, here's what counts as a bad mind <laughs> and yeah. a mind not worth marrying and here's what counts as a good mind and here's a hundred definitions of each and these are like across the board that's preachy right whereas the line there can because then it is on us us the reader anybody to determine for ourselves what counts as that which i think is a good point you make is like who knows what that is i all it's not even a counter all i would say is like exactly that has to be part of your own self discovery is what what kind of fluctuation of other people's thoughts, abilities, mental capacities, emotional capacities, desires, interests, on and on and on, are you okay with? And this is what, I I think this is maybe a higher order form of what we mean when we say getting to know someone. Right. Right? Don't let this flatter you too hard. I don't just like you because you're my cousin. I like you because you have a, I actually like you more because you have a flexible mind. Right, right. (laughs) I, I know people in the wide world of people I'm related to that I think are fine, I would never do a podcast with. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? And so there's a suitability, and and I think maybe it's because it's not well articulated how, for someone like me, it is emotionally satisfying to have deep and thoughtful 
intellectual conversations. And I can admit that it's an emotional thing for me to be able to get to do that. To me, it would be like, okay, here's a good, here's a great indicator. For me, it's curiosity. It's not how much you know, it's how much are you interested in learning. Right. Like are, that are is you a only huge... interested in learning on about certain things. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, so the... I guess if if I was to encapsulate I, I mean I, I think I, I I fundamentally agree with you. I just think that the caution I guess maybe I'm more stuck on the point that, you know, nothing's ever perfect. Uh, yeah, it's of course always, not. We're all broken in our own unique little ways. And I loved how David approached that with Dora. Because, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I think his love for Dora is genuine. It, I think his affection for Dora right. is genuine. Okay. I would quibble a bit of the meaning of the word love and how I mean, it's applied. He says, I did love her. Yeah. Again, I just can throw my arms up and say, I don't know. Because, again, a lot of the impression I get is he's infatuated with Dora. Her, her curls, the way she talks to Jip, the dog, right? Like... I know that he does talk a lot about how she talks to that Yeah, dog, and then, like, whatever. I mean, he's married <laughs> to her. This is why I think, like, why I would want to destigmatize the option where actually the ethical thing to do is to break up. Yes. With, without, yeah, and I, without and I it's see like, where you're going it's, not, it's not like, it's not like Dora's a bad person or David's a bad person, but with enough self-reflection, you're like, this is actually not going to work. And we're not, we're not actually getting to, be the way we most want to be this probably shouldn't happen <laughs> yes yeah you know yeah I, yeah I, and obviously I, I that's not a going. really live option for david and dora in their society no. and i don't think it's actually an option that david wants. maybe like in his darkest parts mm-hmm. of his soul but there's no conscious indication that he no longer wants to be with dora it's that he's realizing but but this again is a point that i think i want to make is there's always going to be that discontent, right? Like the grass, new things are always more exciting. I'm seeing it on a continuum. If there is 25% disparity, it could probably work. If there's 98% disparity, it probably can't. Yeah. Now, where do you draw where your you draw line? line? I think yeah. that that's, that's up to that you. takes a lot of data and a lot of self-reflection. Yeah. Right? Like for some people... 78% disparity is too much. For other people, they could probably handle 85. Like, whatever, right? Like, I, I just, I again, would want to resist having the words we use to describe these situations line up with actual, like, exact categories of them either, you know? Because I don't think that's what Dickens is doing either. But it is useful to orient your attention towards, well, what do you think about the unsuitability of mind and purpose in a marriage? Yep, I think that there's a potential there for discontinuity. <laughs> let's for sure, say, right? For sure. There's certainly. You, I mean, when you when you see what a, David is like with Agnes, it's completely, completely different, different, right? And and you, I don't think anyone who reads this book can say, "Well, ah, it's too bad, Dora." Like, I wish David had stayed with Dora instead of Agnes. Like, no. I was actually the better woman for him. <laughs> kind of thing, no, you, you know? can't. But also, like, I think this is a huge theme of this book like look at david's aunt and and her ex-husband right like yeah no there's there's so much disparity that they do break up and maybe that maybe that's the point yeah a couple quick last thing very quick last things about david this is a day this is an observation david has about uriah and latimer or, or Littimer. what was his name Let's call him Latimer. yeah 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 what the butler the steerforth's butler or who, was, who was all 
business, but slimy but about like, it, right? But seemingly, like again, David has a. Or well, I'll let you say what you're going to say. One of the well, one of the funny things at the end of the book is how he visits them and they're both in jail. And the great this is, here is a great social insight again from Dickens, where he writes. There never were greed and cunning in the world yet that did not do too much and overreach themselves. And it's that piercing insight of greed and cunning are self-defeating in a sense because they can't have an internal mechanism to stop. Yeah. Right? And they're always, if you do 100 crimes and you get away with 100 you're crimes, you're going to want to do 101. You're just going to do 101, right? Like that that ability to rein it in oh, is what Uriah is re- doesn't yeah. have. And that is such a deep insight into the human condition, I massive, think. You know? Massive. So anyway, but what, what were you going to say about David with that, with that situation? Oh, I was going to talk more about uh, how intimidated he was by Latimer. And uh, and how whenever he was in his presence, he felt a sense of of inferiority, and how it's interesting that despite the fact that he's a butler, that he's basically a servant. <laughs> yeah, he like is, he has to do what David tells him. Yeah, he's still like, and I've been, I, I don't know if you been around someone. So this is actually in praise of Vladimir, even though he's not a great person. Is it's really interesting to be around people that are just so competent and i think that's the there's the, an intimidation there's there, intimidation right? just that and and that competence that has bred a confidence like he is confident in his abilities i find those people so refreshing to be around um, the competent people yeah competent people i never in my life have i been more intimidated but yet more had more admiration for people who are just really, really good at mm-hmm. what they do. It's just where you were talking about ideas. I think I have I have the same feeling about ideas, but a feeling that I often get is watching someone do something really well. Yeah, there's a it's a it's, there's an aesthetic. There's an aesthetic that I just, part of that that I just admire mm-hmm. uh, immensely. Now, you're totally right. La- I can't Latimer Latimer in the book. He's not the best example of this because he's slimy. Like no, he's yes, got hidden no, agendas. No, I right? agree. He's not. A, but but it's just that but, feeling that again. Yeah. What is great about Dickens? But, he's describing a feeling that yeah. I know I've oh, had. Oh, totally. Uh, but I agree with the sentiment in general because an observation I've made is that I think that you, if you're met with competence, there's a lot of intimidation. And in, if you're intimidated by a competent person. I think the default setting is very easy to be like, oh, make them stop being competent because they're making me feel inferior. A comparison I would make is that I think that I've noticed if if I'm around someone with a, let's say, wide and supple and uh, loquacious vocabulary, <laughs> mm-hmm. The use of a big word can be intimidating for people. And they're like, oh, why are you using big words? Use simple words. My intuition is much more like, holy shit, that word exists? What does it mean? Like, yes. There's a curiosity yes, factor right. that I feel in that moment, which I think is probably similar to the mechanism you feel of admiration for people who are confident, because I feel that too. So what I'm saying is, like, I think part of enlightenment is understanding that Prometheus isn't bringing us fire to make us realize that we're inferior and we don't have fire. Prometheus is bringing us fire so that we can go explore the caves yeah. and explore the darkness and warm ourselves. ourselves. So the point is not to be intimidated by people who can do things well. 
but to learn from them. Yes. You know what I mean? I would hope that would be a more widespread intuition because some of, like, if I have any capacities, it's because I've learned them from people who can do things better than I can. And I've paid attention to that. You know, and I, I just think, again, that's a better heuristic for personal growth and professional growth, any form of growth you could want, right? People who do things well, well, what do they do? How can I incorporate that into my life? You use that awesome word. What does it mean? What context could I use that in later that I'm growing my own understanding the, of the And world? that's curiosity, too, yeah. like that you described earlier. And I, and I like that. There's just a lot of good curiosity. Okay, this line. It's like a small paragraph, but I wrote it all out because Dickens can arrest me, but this line double arrested me. It has always been my observation of human nature that a man who has any good reason to believe in himself never flourishes himself before the faces of other people in order that they may believe in him. For this reason, I retained my modesty and very self-respect, and the more praise I got, the more I tried to deserve it. And I just wrote, amen. Oh, <laughs> so I know yeah. we've talked. I've talked about before about earning your title, even after you've gotten it. Uh, this line, the more praise I got, the more I tried to deserve it. I can't think of a better orientation of mind about your work in the world than that. And I'm going to be honest, that is so hard to do for me. Yeah, okay. Like, I would say that, and I think this goes back to psychological desires for greatness and things like that, but, like, that is the part of David Copperfield I don't understand because so much of me wants adulation and (laughs) affirmation. Yeah. From certain people, not from everyone, not in general, but a lot of me, like I think this is a great psychological flaw that I have, is a lot of me longs for recognition. And to reach that point, I think like that's what I'm striving towards, I would right. say. Yeah. Because I, I also, I actually read that quote again today mm-hmm. in, in a preparation for this. And my, I'm just blown away by it. Like mm-hmm. that level of humility. And, and, and I've had glimpses of that in my life. There have been moments where people have said things about me and that the thought in my mind has actually been, I hope I live up to that. Yeah. Like I want to become better so that that's true mm-hmm. of me. And I, I guess I would encourage people who, who hear something like that, that it's a journey and I'm definitely not there <laughs> and I want to be more there, but that is the goal. Yeah, and I mean, I've had so many feelings that I read in Dickens later and be like, oh my God, Dickens had that feeling too. You <laughs> I know. know. <laughs> but this one might be the most resonant one for me because of how committed emotionally and intellectually I am to like earning, doing a Herculean effort to earn one smidge of praise, you know? And like, that's just always been my kind of mental orientation. And so one thing I struggle with, if we're going to air our struggles, I struggle with, and this is all my perception of things, but I struggle with the idea of people reveling in praise and, and credit that even if they've earned to some degree, they're like not really doing anything else now. And they're just kind of like basking in it or resting on their laurels or a band that makes it big, but then just kind of is ostentatious in all their interviews. And then goes, goes eight years between album releases. Doesn't have any new music. If they do release new songs, they're so shitty and they're like auto tuned to fuck or something like that, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And then, or like the kind of ego driven, 
comments or ego driven ways of talking about yourself or like being dismissive of people who are less famous than you because hey you shouldn't share the stage with me kind of thing like don't you know what I've done uh I'm the person who did this kind of thing like like to me a major red flag of someone with credibility is if they reference their own work as authority on anything (laughs) right yeah as opposed as opposed like as opposed to like well you know and that's different than like bringing up something you did in your work to like maybe further a thought or to to have a conversation about something. And so, because what David Copperfield is talking about in this particular paragraph is how when he started to get some notoriety and fame from his stories, as also Dickens would have in his time, he, in the book, Uriah Heep is flourishing himself in front of other people. He's like making a big spectacle about how humble he is. Like it's making a big deal. And I, this line of you, ne- you never flourish yourself in others if you believe in yourself, right? It's like, like well, you don't need I external think that's validation. That's the part of the yeah. line, or the, that's the essential part of the quote is if you believe in yourself. And I think that insecurity, I'm, insecurity has become a big theme of, I would say, my personal development over the last two months, where mm. I've been really thinking a lot about okay. And and we look at, at Uriah, and he is horribly insecure, and his insecurity comes largely from his disdain for how he was treated by others who kind of look down on him. Like, he hates them, and he wants to crush them and destroy them, and, and he becomes embittered by that. But that's insecurity. Yep. And insecurity, at least in my own life, and I, I'm beginning to perceive it when I see the impact that it has on other people's lives— is crippling, mm-hmm. not only to your own happiness, but to your effectiveness. Because you are const- if you're feeling insecure, you're going to constantly be looking for validation. And if you're constantly looking for external validation, you will actually not be utilizing the most important tool in the human arsenal, which or yeah, the most important weapon in the human arsenal, which is learning from your mistakes. Because mm-hmm. you will be constantly attempting to avoid mistakes, cover up mistakes, make excuses for mistakes, instead of saying, wow, okay, so that didn't work. Yeah. What am I going to do now? Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. What is your thoughts on the McIbers? This is a couple, Mr. and Mrs. McIver, who David kind of befriends early in the book, and then they're like in and out a bunch in the book of him. Oh, the McIvers. I mean, I think they're very verbose. They're the most exciting fun aspect of this book, I would say, every time they make an appearance or or you get they a letter. Are you get unforgettable. A, you yeah, you get a letter from one of them, you're like, "Ah, oh man, these yeah. guys and their writing and they're so poor. <laughs> they're they're in poverty <laughs> the yet, whole book. And yet always so hopeful. Well, yeah. not always, but most of the time so hopeful. A semblance of nobility but also like rapscallions like they're yeah. they're totally like i mean think of the poor baker that they keep not paying like this is there i guess is indebtedness to people is there an endearing quality to it well what's what makes it endearing not paying your creditors is that, is that an they, okay thing no of course i would say no yeah however they don't run from their debts either they just like admit they can't pay them and write IOUs and like make a they speaking of flourishing 
Wilkins McIver does make a big flourish about pointing out how he is so depraved and he will pay his debts when he can kind of thing. And don't blame this on Mrs. McIver because this is all his own doing. Like he's unbelievably poetic in his own self-deprecation, hey? Yeah, there's a lot which, of self-deprecation which, from him. Okay. Higher order thinking, the way that McIver can entertain people Sure, he's not paying back his monetary debts, but he's paying them in a some sense. Right. <laughs> right? He's, he's an entertainer. He's, oh. And entertainers do give us something beyond money oh, in our yeah. lives. Oh, yeah. And I think that that's probably passively why he gets in less trouble than he probably should because <laughs> of his weird charm. And- he does have a lot of charm. Okay, so here, if you want my thoughts on them, I would say this. I think they're the kind of people that make life worth living but they might not be the kind of people you want to lend money to <laughs> no definitely not that it's hard to explain really what they're like without reading the book like there's no way i can do justice no. to the way that this, they talk yeah. without but i will say from the book the most interesting part to me about mrs mckyber is how she never abandons she's loyal to the end like you were talking yeah. about with yes, david Dora yeah. before but they seem more compatible than david well, there's, Dora a, there's david. a high level of love and compatibility yeah. there it seems. but what's interesting about mr mckyber is that he starts to go work for uriah heap and when this first starts to happen he kind of it's almost like he's like friends off with david right like there's a distance that david starts to feel however in the end conscience wins out because McIver is the whistleblower on Uriah Heap that sent him to jail because Uriah is basically like, I can't. I, he's defrauding people, right? Like he's like constantly. He's, yeah, yeah, he's he's a he's stealing money from and basically intimidating them and giving yeah, them things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And McIver blows the whistle on this, so uh, in the end, he makes good decisions, right? Like so, even at the end of his rope. And I, I just think it's interesting that in a book that isn't really plot driven, we do get a whistleblower motif in it. You know. Like, I don't know, what do you think of that, the whistleblower aspect of Mackay? Well, I think that the whistleblower aspect is the aspect of integrity that we see, one of the aspects of integrity that we see in him, despite, let's say, his many foibles and his flaws. Like, <laughs> this is an incredibly flawed character uh, <laughs> who seems to have grandiose visions of grand, or like, like, like delusions of grandeur, and yet so lovable. Yeah. He, he's so, so lovable. loyal again like dickens dickens's novels are full of stereotypes it's not a knock against him dickens isn't as good as some of the greats in plot and diversity of characters however the characters he does write are so memorable and so well think of like the best the, of their the kind. cultural uh, impact that scrooge has had yeah. right like yeah because mckyber you could make a movie about mckyber yeah, for sure. Oh, like this it would guy, be a good movie. Uh, this it would be so funny. <laughs> yeah. The two of them, because Mrs. McIver is funny too, in a, in a more deadpan kind of way. Well, you know? the one thing I guess I would say that I do find annoying about her is her constant refrain that you know she married him and she's never going to leave him, despite everyone saying that she should leave. Uh, him. Yeah, it does and seem like, like a it's little like, bit. okay. You know, <laughs> the first five times, but now it's just it's it's a little bit too much. Yeah, I I um, love the McIver's. one thing I want to get to and we can talk about it now or later but is is the quality of the dinner party scenes in this book. Okay. Uh, yeah. But uh Well, yeah, let's just do The McIver's are involved in a couple yeah. of them but not all of them. They're I I'm sure most of the listeners have had this experience hopefully uh where a really great dinner party like there are, there's yeah. almost nothing like it. I would argue, where the <laughs> everything's working, where the where the conversation is flowing, the wine is flowing. Dickens 
again, this is like where I just am like, you are amazing, captures that feeling yeah. in text in a way nobody else can. Yeah, no. Uh, the the way that all of the different parties are relating to each other and like I'm talking to you, but then the third person stakes, makes a comment to you, but then I make a comment to them, but then the fourth person makes a comment to you about their comment <laughs> to you. And it's just, it's incredible, the and complexity des- and of it. And his describing of the boisterous nature of drunkenness. Yeah. Uh, particularly in it's one. almost like he did it before <laughs> yeah, like, but <laughs> but his perceptive ability on it is yeah. just is is mind-bogglingly good like yeah i i read it and i'm like i felt that i've lived that i could never have written that that would be a great epitaph on dickens tombstone mind-bogglingly good <laughs> yes yes yeah so uh, yeah i guess i just there's not a lot more to say on that but the book is worth reading for those scenes alone yeah definitely and, i agree I can't, I couldn't, I mean, the dinner party, like it reminds me a little bit of the way that they describe the feeling of intenseness and interest I get is the way like they describe food in the Red Wall books. Yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) So Agnes is the one, the woman who's in the book, well, girl to be woman who's in the book for a lot of it, that is David's friend and his sister, he says. And yet- Basically grew up with her for seven years. Yeah, and, and- Actually, it's her that he's suitable in mind and purpose with to be married to. And he, she's the one that he loves, right? And she notices all the little things that make Steerforth a bad friend to David over time. So she's kind of like the angel on his shoulder, right? Like she's a and perfect... And he calls her that frequently. Yeah, yeah, and I love that. Like she sees the good in David, sees the bad in Steerforth and wants to protect and David And warns from David that. about yeah. it, but then also doesn't say, you know, like doesn't realizes pressure that David, him. Yeah, it doesn't say you can't hang out with mm-hmm. him anymore. It doesn't try to force something yeah. on him, but warns him. And that warning is meaningful to David to such an extent that he thinks about it frequently. Mm-hmm. She takes care of her father and she's lovely and wholesome to her dad. And it's, you know, like honor your parents. She's a perfect example of someone who honors her parents. Uh, she delivers the kind and soft advice of someone who cares about you. If you say something true to a person and you trust them and you know that they'll understand it, you don't have to say it hard. You say it soft, and that's actually the best way to do it. And then her last line to him, or one of her last lines is, I've loved you my whole life. And so it's like paying attention to the one who really, truly cares about you in their heart. Again, she's not a major character in the book even, but she's such an important secondary character to the way that David conceives of the world and especially how he orients himself at the end of the book you know so i don't know what are you any thoughts on agnes who's also the name of the cat in the animated movie that comes to help yes or falls in love with david David. okay so agnes one of the the difficulties i have with with dickens in this in this particular instance is is i feel like he's created too much of a dichotomy between Dora and Agnes. Okay. He's kind of given all these positive qualities to Agnes and all these negative qualities to Dora. And then he has his, his main character fall in love with Dora and not Agnes. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's like, I mean, we as the reader are left looking at, at David and being like, you dolt. Like, obviously it's Agnes that mm-hmm. loves you. Like, mm-hmm. we, we know. Yeah. Like, no one in the audience is fooled. <laughs> so that annoys me. But I think... If we're going to go into what are the qualities about her that uh, we admire and therefore are sitting there as the audience banging our head against the wall being like, what are you doing, David? We admire her her softness. Yeah. Despite the bad things that are happening to her with Uriah. 
despite the fact that she loves David and he marries somebody else, what we see is that she is continuously approaching life with a hopefulness mm-hmm. and happiness and joy that seems to be that is soft. And I think this goes back to something you've said that I we haven't approached in this way. But when we say hard-headed and soft-hearted, that kind of soft-hearted is also included. Mm-hmm. It's it's a willingness to get hurt and be repeatedly hurt without becoming bitter and scarred. Well, I definitely think you can be hard-minded, soft-hearted, and soft-spoken. Yes. Ah, a, a good. That's a, a that, good, yeah. You know, uh, <laughs> it's hard to imagine listening to me talk. I even know anything about the soft-spoken side of humanity. <laughs> However, <laughs> I know people who have a great, strong mind, love in their heart, and don't say it loudly. She would be one of these people in the yeah. book, right? It, it, she reminds me, She it, like just talking about it that way, it harkens back to the East of Eden line where there's nothing so strong as a woman with love in her yeah. heart, yeah. you know? And because Agnes has so much love in her heart, there's no there's no stronger character in the book than her, I think. Yeah, she, yeah. Internally. Yeah. Well, uh, strength of character is, is just seems ironclad. And, and just to give a comment or a thought or feedback on what you said, yeah, I, I think that Dick a weakness of Dickens, I don't want to call it a weakness exactly, a lack of focus, I'd say, because I don't think, given how great of a writer Dickens is, I wouldn't say he couldn't do it. I think he ch- probably chooses not to write super in-depth and complicated characters. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just don't think I think he's his, more interested in yeah. the scene yeah. and the context and the interaction. And the social feelings. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. And so... I think he could write more intricate characters like than Dora and Agnes are. I just don't think that's what he's wanting to do. Yeah, that's not as you yeah. know. And, 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 and but but again, that. like that's not really in any in any of the books I don't I remember that that isn't a there aren't super complicated characters. Like there's a I would say maybe there's a couple in Bleak House, but Bleak House is a much as if you'll pardon it, a more bleak novel than this one and it's a darker yeah, le- novel. way less hopeful yeah yeah it's probably and, uh, his least hopeful book. yeah and so i think that that's probably why you see that right yeah you do you're not gonna have a super complicated characters in a happy book <laughs> <laughs> well what is that that line you know all happy families are the same and, and all no. unhappy unhappy families are unhappy in their own way yeah okay so a quick run through some other characters clara is david's mom she chides Peggy even though she's right. And so I thought loneliness can be a blinder. She wants someone she will she will want someone she's so lonely, she'll even take a merge stone and she's overcome by it. And that's a good warning, I think. Like don't let loneliness drop your standards. Yes. Yes. That kind of thing. The merge stones, she turn they turn Clara's true feelings into perceived ungratefulness, which is total manipulation, right? Well, like, and, and they see that she has a weakness in that area and they beat her over the head yeah, with it constantly. They're so manipulative, uh, both Mr. Murdstone and, and they his do it all the time. sister Miss Murdstone. Yeah. So again, like neither of these characters are complicated. So they're like, Well, there's no compunction on their parts to be this evil. Yeah. That's a great Dickensianism, too, I'd say. Again, Murdstones, they don't want David to be with the servants just to sit and be proper. And so this is a tyranny of not letting the soul grow, right? Because his soul is growing when he's spending time with servants. That's not proper. You can't do it. That's their firmness. So I hate them at that. Here's something I loved. Aunt Betsy. This is on page 199. So it's like, David's still a kid. She stands up to the Murdstones as only one can who has a station. Part of the duty of an ethical person is to stand up against tyranny when you have the station and platform to do it. 
and because she's wealthy at this point, has a home, can support David, she has no time for the Murdstones, you know? And I love this idea of, like... And they're kind of powerless before her. Mm-hmm. Like, this, these people who have, like, been so powerful in David's life yeah. and, and made it so miserable really can't touch. This is This is a good analogy here is actually why I admire people like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins or, you know, the Weinstein brothers, because... They have a platform. Douglas Murray is another great example. They have a platform. They're committed to free speech. They say things that are unpopular, but with a good heart. And they don't back down to the murdstones of the world or the tyrants or the people who would have them shut up because they are protecting. They're they're people with stations and platforms who are looking out for people who don't so that everyone can have a chance at making their soul grow. Yeah. And that is a big admiration I have that Aunt Betsy shows in this scene. I love how Aunt Betsy ignores Miss Murdstone, a deaf ear to the whinging contingents. And just treats her, yeah. <laughs> she just keeps like focused on the task her. and lets the little pricks go along the yeah, way, right? Yeah. So it's a good lesson, like that scene where she's basically ignoring all the little barbs yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> that Miss Murdstone is throwing in, and like that is maturity. Peggy is mad at Mr. Murdstone on David's behalf. I love the part where Ham dies saving men at sea. And this is a huge thing for David, like his admiration for Ham. He goes back and remembers Ham. Like even years later, he goes back and sees Mr. Peggotty, that kind of thing. And Uriah uses the threats of crushing. So Uriah, the villain, is just threatening people instead of inspiring them. We talk about this actually a lot, like authority, tyranny, title. He uses threats, whereas a real leader uses inspiration. Yes. Now, if you want to think about it from an economical, like you have no overhead cost of enforcing your threats, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, which is why societies that don't have to threaten their people to do awesome things, but incentivize them to do way better. That's a very low resolution way of putting it. But anyway, to wrap up, I wanted to just again quickly, (laughs) because a couple Dickens, like Dickens himself, he uses firmness as a pseudonym for tyranny with the Murdstones. He really is so in- insightful on the frivolity of infatuation. I yeah. love that part oh, of his. Yeah. Here's a great line. But also the power of it. Yes. Like he he makes you feel how powerful it is yep. to feel that. Which is the double side of the coin. Like you feel that here's the problem with it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. He's almost it, like but a f- he, but he does that without saying here's the problem with it. He introduces the he just introduces the oh this is the oh, this is the he introduces the cause and effect. Yeah. He's like, oh, here's what's happening, and this is what happens. Yeah, he's like a next-level therapist. Yeah, He's like awesome. a role-playing therapist <laughs> that you don't even know is your therapist. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Here's a good little insight on love. And this is a quote from the book. He is wretched, I have no doubt, but he is nothing to me. I have been wretched, too. And it's like it's kind of a negative feeling that you have where it's like someone else's heart is hurting but you don't care because they're a rival or there's someone you don't like and your heart is hurt too. You know, it's kind of a downside. Here's a beautiful line. There is no substitute for thoroughgoing, ardent, and sincere earnestness. No. It's beautiful. Like earnestness and sincerity. I, I think I've mentioned before, I'm a sucker for it. It makes me tear up. I tear up at weddings when people like express their love so truly for another person. Like it's something that overcomes me. Uh, here is something that, He's saying about Agnes, with the unerring instinct of her noble heart, she touched the chords of my memory so softly and so harmoniously that not one jarred within me. 
that is the kind of writing you can expect if you read this book yeah. or any Dickens. And it will be all throughout it. So that beautiful prose is talking about love. Like, tell me you don't want to read that. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, I don't really like to leave it on a sociological or a, even a political thing, but I thought this is a super interesting thing for Dickens to write about in 1850 because I think it's just as applicable now. The context of this quote is that they're talking about people not really caring about what's going on. And because of the kind of malaise and indifference about what's going on in your society, you're in the Sahara. You're in the middle of nowhere. How do you get out? And so it says, but when society is the name for such hollow gentlemen and ladies, Julia, and when its breeding is professed indifference to everything that can advance or can retard mankind, I think we must have lost ourselves in the same desert of Sahara and better find the way out. And again, I think to reference our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy episode, at the end of that one, we talked about the three levels of human society. And when you get to the last level of sophistication, it's like hedonism, right? I think Dickens is talking about hedonism here, where it's just like, well, who cares what sort of new laws or governments or ways we can, or educational, like where are we going to go eat dinner kind of thing? Yeah. The, or, lack of or... a, the lack of a civic and mental and educational engagement in your society kind of thing. And that's the blasé public that, well, we're in that desert in Sahara and we need to get out. I don't necessarily want to bring that up to, because I know we could talk about that yeah, for hours and hours. Yeah, hour. yeah. I just bring that up to say, like, Dickens is noticing. I love when writers from over 150 years ago notice things about ills about society that could be applicable today. Yeah. And, <laughs> you and, know? and I think the way that I would close that off, I think is really good, is be a critic of your society don't be a critic in the sense of only being a critic because i mean the critic doesn't count i i'm really a big fan of the doer of deeds but do be the do be insightful and perceptive and look out there and say okay like what's actually going on mm -hmm. and, I think and, and that's because that's how you keep a vibrancy and a dynamism in your society is the self-critic and the critic of other societies and the way to again not to make it too philosophical but it's the hegelian idea of like you have a thesis someone who disagrees with you has an antithesis be of the two things you figure out of the thesis and the antithesis what's kind of true in both and then you have a new synthesis which becomes a new thesis which gets a new antithesis and on and on and on but even though that's like potentially a painful interaction because it's never easy to be disagreed with or disagree with other people new that's how new ideas are made yeah, and well, new thoughts and new ways to, to try yeah, things. Yeah, that's the conversation. Yeah, I think, and that's what we're trying in our own little way to do here. <laughs> sure, as we're trying to perceive. Yeah, we're trying to work out what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So, final wrap-up thought about this book, David. Okay, I'm not gonna lie. This book is a slog. Like, it's uh, not the easiest book to read. It, it is not. A, but it's a joyful flowing book. But it is one of those. It's like it's like having kids. Maybe it's really hard, <laughs> but the joy that you get from the little moments. I think it's worth it. Yeah, I still think exactly. it's a worthwhile. Like any Dickens, it's really hard to read, but it's worth it. That's what I, I think that's what I'm saying. It's it's not it, it is a task that you will take upon yourself, but the the you will feel a sense of accomplishment when when you complete it, but not just accomplishment. You will I think you'll become a better person in the sense that you're going to understand your own feelings a little better. Yeah. First thing I would say is I encourage you to start playing the How Would Dickens Say It game because it's probably one of my favorites. <laughs> it is. I can attest it is one of Luke's favorites. Because you can... You can uh, and it's a crowd pleaser. <laughs> yeah, it is a crowd pleaser. And you can really 
ham it up and make it a big show because I feel like I feel like this is the written version of a big show. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the way that yeah. <laughs> Dickens writes it. Okay. The book David Copperfield is a unique adventure of a character who is learning from every single person he ever comes across in his life. So I actually think one of the best... Okay, by the end of this book, David Copperfield is someone who has, for all normative senses, is a success. He has grown huge. He has developed. He is basically held in esteem by everybody. Okay, how did he do this? Okay, and maybe this is something that we talked about at the beginning or you brought up that it's like a little bit unbelievable. Why I think David succeeds is he is the most curious person in this book. He never wastes an opportunity to learn from the people around him. He learns from Peggotty. He learns from Murdstone. He learns from Traddles. He learns from Steerforth. And again, I think that this is such a beautiful and and like to me, just in a nerdy way, almost such a cool way for Dickens to autobiographize himself in a novel is because Dickens, if you read all of Dickens novels, you can't help but come away with, holy fuck, this guy paid attention to the world. Yeah, <laughs> right? I, I, that's a really good and, way of and, putting it. And I can't help but feel like with David Copperfield, it's like, holy, David Copperfield paid attention to everybody that was around him and they felt it and they felt it. And so I think for me personally, the great idea to come out of this book, David Copperfield is the never ending gift, the, a gift that gives forever, which is curiosity and just wanting to know more about what's going on and about the people around you. And I never really thought about it before. And I mean, it's great. I mean, Dickens has another book called The Old Curiosity Shop. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, like yeah. he even references the word itself. Dickens' curiosity of the world, you you could never have the observations he does without being curious about it. And I think that that's ultimately why I love Dickens. And I think that this, because this book is the most about Dickens of any of his books, is why I love this book the most of any of his books. There you go. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know what you mean. So anyway, that's what I got from this. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, we we really <laughs> hope, it, it, we hope that, uh, I, I would like to say, maybe for some of the movies we do too, that our podcast is longer than the movie. And so you don't have to, there's no way no. that it's going to take no. you less time to read the You're book. It's going to take but, you at least 10 times as long. But <laughs> You know, you'll hopefully learn how Dickens would say it. All right. So thank you for listening. This has been another episode of Really True Fiction. My name is Luke Mason. And my name is David Parker. Have a good one, everybody. Bye-bye.